Well, good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Thankful that you're here. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. If there's anything that we can do to get you connected to the community here at River City, we'd love to be able to do that. Come find me or Aaron or anybody else you've seen up front here. We really would love to get to know you, get you plugged in the community. Uh, excited as well about the work that God is doing in Madison through Eastside Church and our friends uh, Ben and Michael there, just grateful for what God's up to in those places and just grateful to be able to support the work that God is doing in those places. And so just really encourage you to be praying about that with us. If you want to get on the updates uh, from uh, Michael and Ben or any of the other churches that we help, church plants that we help support, um, you can fill out a connection card and just write like church plant updates on the bottom and uh, we'll make sure that you guys get on those lists uh, from all those, those different church planners as well. So uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys this morning. We, this fall, we have been studying Exodus chapter 20, uh, and Exodus chapter 20 is the, the, the account of the Ten Commandments. And uh, what we saw so far, we framed our study of the Ten Commandments in, in the context of one of the most central storylines of the Bible, and that storyline is that God is making a people for himself, a people who are made in his image and who live for the praise of his glory. And what we see is throughout the storyline of the Bible is that the, the primary way in which God's people um, obey, the primary way in which pe- God's people do that, they live for his glory, uh, is by obeying God's commands. And what we see is that uh, the reason for that is because God's commands, they don't just show us what God wants, they show us what he is like. God's commands aren't, they're not just a legalistic list of his favorite rules, they're not just like an arbitrary list based on how he was feeling that day. Instead, God's commands are a revelation of his very character and of his being. They show us what he is like. Oftentimes, I think when people think about the Ten Commandments or God's commands in general, they think they're just kind of some outdated, burdensome list of do's and don'ts that you just kind of got to muscle through and kind of make happen on your own effort. Or, or at worst, they're this oppressive chains that really keep you from experiencing life as you think it should be experienced. And what I've hoped that you have seen so far in our study is that that's, that's in fact the opposite of what God's commands are. Uh, Psalm 119 tells us God's commands refresh the soul, they give life to the heart, and that they, uh, in keeping them, there is great reward. You see, the reality is that God's commands are, the Ten Commandments, they're really a gracious guide that God shows us. They're a guide that he gives a freed people to show us what it looks like to live in the freedom that he has bought for us. I show a free people how to live free. They're, they're an invitation to a life of freedom and blessing. And what, we saw, uh, what we've seen throughout the first four or five commandments so far is that that life of blessing and freedom that God extends to his people, it begins with worshiping God. It has everything to do with worshiping him. Uh, what we saw in the first four commandments, the first table of the law, that this life of freedom begins it begins with how we relate to God. The first table calls us to worship God supremely and exclusively and rightly and dependently and restfully, to have the one true God be the overwhelming, controlling influence of our life in every sphere, in every aspect, to have, to have, to have him be the primary driving force of our lives. And last week, we saw how the fifth command to honor our parents transitioned us to the second table of the law. If the the first table primarily focuses on our relationship to God, then the second table of the Ten Commandments, or the last six, they they, they focus primarily on our horizontal relationships with people. And while the two tables of the law may have different focuses, they're not disconnected. Hopefully what you saw last week as we studied is that the call to honor our parents isn't ultimately about them. 
It's not ultimately about the, the honor or the, the do-ness of worth that our parents have. Ultimately, the call to honor our parents is about honoring God himself who is worthy of honor. And in honoring our parents and those he has sovereignly placed in authority over us, we honor him. You see, all of it boils back down to God himself. And as we study the sixth commandment this morning, uh, the command not to murder, we'll see again that this command, absolutely, it has to do with our horizontal relationships with people, but ultimately, it's rooted in our relationship to God. You see, the reality is that how we view and relate to God changes everything about how we view and relate to people. And what I want you to see this morning as we study this command is that recognizing the priceless value that God places on the life of all those who are made in his image, it transforms how we understand this command and how we live out obedience to it. When we see the priceless value that God places on all life made in his image, it changes the way that we view people and the way that we relate to them. So let's pray. We'll dive into our time in God's word this morning. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we just humbly say, God, we really need you. God, we wrestle with a topic this morning that might seem easy on the outset, but has deep and far-reaching implications into our heart. And so, God, I pray that you would keep us from feeling distant or unengaged this morning uh, that you would help us to see that this command is written to us and for us. And God, and that your word convicts us, that it shapes us. God, we ask that you might graciously be reorienting our hearts as your people around you and your word. God, we also ask this morning that the gospel would be good news, transformingly, life-givingly good news as we are met with your word. So God, we need you this morning in every way. I need you to speak. We need you to hear. God, we need you. And so we ask that you would come to meet us in our need for you, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're in Exodus chapter 20, a short one this morning. Exodus twenty thirteen, you shall not murder. And so the question this morning is, what begins by asking this? What instruction is God giving us in the sixth command? It seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? Seems like pretty black and white. Uh, it's even simpler in the original language. It's actually just two words, no murder. And what that might actually be, that might actually be different from the way that you may have learned it. You see, most of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments in the context of the good old King James Version. In the King James, it's translated, thou shalt not kill. But the reality is that the word kill there is just not a very accurate translation of the word that is used here. You see, there are, there are at least eight different Hebrew words that refer to, to killing of various sorts and kinds, and, none, and the one that is used here in this passage is very specific. Uh, this word here is never used when referring to the legal system or to the military, or even hunting for that matter, which I know is good news to many of you. It's good news to me because it is hot stick season, people. And if you wanted to know what to get me for Christmas, that's what I want, okay? Especially the ones that are spicy with a little bit of pepper jack cheese in them. Great. There's nothing against that in the Bible. It's great. Just wonderful, right? Um, so hunting, not, not opposed by the sixth commandment, right? In all seriousness, no, the, the word that is translated as murder here in the NIV is referring specifically to the unlawful taking of innocent human life. 
It was referring to the unlawful taking of innocent human life, not all killing in general. You see, most clearly this would include outright, intentional, premeditated taking of human life, no matter what stage of life or perceived cost or contribution, whether it is from the moment of conception to someone's final days, the Bible is repeatedly, abundantly, overtly clear that all life is to be protected. You see, but this command is about so much more than that. See, additionally, we see in other passages, this command includes killing that isn't premeditated or what we would call today as voluntary manslaughter. Think heat of the moment type crimes, right? Heat of the moment type killings. We also see this command encompasses negligent homicide as well. In Exodus 21, we read about uh, how a negligent, a negligent owner of an ox who has repeatedly injured people will be held accountable for murder. In Deuteronomy 22, we, God commands the Israelites to build parapets or their kind of ledges or fences around their roofs so that they won't be held accountable for someone falling off their roof at night while they were sleeping. And Israelites used their roofs as kind of like a secondary living area because they lived in a very hot climate and in our context today, that would include things like being held accountable for, for someone drowning if you don't have a fence around your in-ground pool, right? We have laws about those kinds of things. And, and, or a drunk driver being held accountable for the damage to property or to persons that that person does. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, the sixth commandment prohibits much more than just cold-blooded, premeditated murder. It prohibits killing or causing the killing of any legally innocent person by direct action action or negligent inaction. You see, but the command is uh, about more than that. In fact, what I said this morning before is that the command, while it does prohibit some types of killing, it doesn't prohibit all. To argue that the Bible prohibits all types of killing, you would have to ignore three very clear uh, and, and uh, three very clear exceptions that we find throughout Scripture. And the first exception that we see is simply this: it's self-defense. We see in places like Exodus 22 and Esther chapter 8 that one situation in which killing uh, is not only permitted but even sometimes warranted is in the protection of oneself or uh, one's family from violent attack. Uh, additionally, we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that capital punishment is, is not considered murder. When it comes to killing, the Bible makes a distinction between individuals and the state. Exodus chapter 21, Romans 13, both of those places express how God has given governments the authority to take human life. The Bible is abundantly clear that, that for individuals to, to take, to avenge themselves is wrong. But again, the Bible makes a distinction and gives governments the authority to avenge the taking of innocent life. Now, I just want to be clear here. I, I am not commenting on the justness or the efficacy of the American justice system. I am not advocating for capital punishment as like something we should for sure be doing. I, I'm not even trying to argue for a political position or anything along those lines. All I am simply saying is that the Bible recognizes that governments are given, uh, a, governments are given the right to justly punish sin. Governments are given the right to justly punish murder and to keep people safe. And if they misuse that authority, then God will hold them accountable for that. But the Bible is clear that God gives governments and, and authorities uh, their God-ordained institutions. Lastly, the Bible teaches that it is not that it's not unlawful to kill enemies while in wartime, provided that it is a just war. Now, many wars, probably most wars, are not just. 
Uh, many wars, probably most wars, are, are in fact murderous, even some that have been waged by our own country. That being said, some wars are necessary to protect innocent life. Sometimes the, sometimes the, the, the most life-giving thing that we can do is to go to war to protect the lives of others. Now again, I am not trying to address which wars that our country has fought that are just or unjust. We don't have time to get into the deep veins of that. But what I am saying is that those are three exceptions in which the Bible gives towards this command. You see, and what ties all of these exceptions together, the, the thread that connects them is that, uh, is that the goal of each of these exceptions is not the destruction of life, but actually the preservation of life. You see, it's obviously in the case of self-defense. Sometimes it's necessary to take a life in order to preserve a life. In the case of a just war, the same principle applies just on a larger scale. The purpose of having an army is not to just kill people, but to keep a, citizen's, a country's citizens safe or to protect the lives of others. This same life-preserving principle even holds true for capital punishment. And the execution of a murderer stops him from killing again or deters other murderers from doing the same crimes. Then those can be situations in which there is preservation of life that is at hand. In other words, the only time that killing is justifiable is, is a killing that is necessary for the preservation of life. See, the command this morning is not just simply forbidding murder. What it's doing is showing us the incredibly high value that God places on human life. You see, and on a whole, there is vast and overwhelming agreement on this issue and on this topic. And pretty much everybody agrees that murder is wrong and that the exceptions listed are valid. But in places where there is real and significant disagreement on the, the specifics of the what of this command, almost always the discrepancy has to do with the why. It's the root underneath it. It's the reasoning for it. And that brings us to what this command reveals about God. See, remember, God's commands, they don't just show us what he wants. They show us what he is like. They, they reveal his nature and his character to us. You see, if you walked down the street and asked 100 people if they thought murder, from wrong, murder was wrong, you could be pretty safe in betting you'd get 100 yeses on that, right? There, there isn't really discrepancy. People are like, murder, not good. We're on that team. Everyone, yes, everyone's on that team, right? You might get the random sociopath, but overall, you're going to get 100 yeses, right? Murder is wrong. Let's, let's, not, let's not do that, right? But if you ask that same 100 people why murder was wrong, you would get a mountain of different answers. You would get a mountain of different answers. You see, some people might say, well, well, God says so. That's just the way it is. Or some people might say, well, just life is a valuable thing. Uh, but when it comes down to it, some other people might say, well, it's just not right. It's just not right. Or some people might say, well, you just can't function as a society if murder is okay, right? It's just how would you go about your daily life or business? Or how would you just, anyone would feel safe? Or, or how would you do any of that, those kinds of things? But see, when it comes down to it, for most people, the basis for murder being wrong wrong comes down to some form of utilitarian ethics. It's just a matter of utility. See, the problem is, is that when the basis for valuing life is strictly a horizontal thing, it's strictly about our relationships with people or with society, then the, the question quickly becomes, well, who decides which life is valuable? Who decides which lives are worth protecting? Who decides which, which lives make this world a better place? Which lives make this world an, an improved place? Or which lives, if taken, wouldn't make it a better one? See, and as Christians, we realize that the sanctity of life is based on much more than pragmatic considerations. 
You see, instead, it is rooted in the fact that every human everywhere, no matter their age or gender, no matter their race or ethnicity, no matter their health or disability, no matter their political standing, no matter their economic status, they are made in the image of God and therefore have inherent and immeasurable dignity and value and worth. Genesis 9, 6 says it this way, whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. You see, no human being has the right to take another's life because each person is made in God's image. See, being made in God's image doesn't mean we look like God. God is spirit. Instead, that means that unlike any other part of creation, we have the capacity to know God and to reflect God's nature and character and to relate to the rest of creation on his behalf as his representatives, to be his kingdom ambassadors. You see, because humanity is made in the image of God, it means that humanity is both incredibly valuable and incredibly precious. You see, the penalty for murder being death, that doesn't show indifference for life. Instead, it shows an incredibly high value for life. It's incredibly, it's tremendous value. See, a life for a life does not express vengefulness, but rather the idea that the only payment that can be made for taking of human life is life itself. You see, God is immeasurably valuable, and so human life made in his image is of immeasurable value. Human life is priceless. There is no earthly equivalent to it. Human life, though, is not just valuable, it is incredibly precious. Philip Reichen writes this, What makes life so precious is that every human being is made in God's image. God has put his stamp on every one of us the way a great artist signs his name to a work of art. Therefore, to damage a life is to deface one of God's masterpieces. You see, that's why as Christians we believe that life is precious and should be protected at all stages. Trevin Wax writes this, We judge a person's worth based on their origin, not on their productiveness. We judge a person's worth based on their origin, not on their productiveness. You see, what that means is that everyone, everywhere, always has value and worth. Every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious. Children with special needs are precious. Adult aging parents are precious, even if their minds are being lost to dementia. Nonverbal children are parents. Those in wheelchairs are precious. Those, those who are completely dependent on others or doctors are precious. You see, all life matters to God because it is made in his image. You see, the sixth commandment shows us a God who creates a God who values life because it's made in his image. But the sixth commandment, it roots the sanctity of human life in God himself, who is immeasurably valuable and precious, but it also is rooted in God's sovereignty and his authority as well. See, God is sovereign over life and death, not people. God is the creator, and he is the one who gives life. He is the one who takes it away. It is his prerogative to give it and his prerogative to take it when and how he sees fit. You see, when we step in and decide to take life, what happens is we are assuming God's authority. We are sitting on the throne 
throne. And in violating God's, God's sovereignty, we, we rob him of his sovereign authority, but we also rob him of his glory. You see, God has given us life and breath, not for our own sake, but so that we might live for the praise of his glory. One commentator writes it this way, every person is either actually or potentially someone who declares God's praise. Murder is the arrogant, willful subtraction of the capacity for the display of God's glory in the midst of his creation. Therefore, anybody who kills another person therefore robs God. We speak often of murder as harm to the victim, but the main harm is to the dignity of God himself. You see, this is why the Bible not only opposes things like murder, but also suicide. You see, it's God's prerogative to take life as the creator, to give it and to take it. We don't determine the value or the worth or the dignity of anyone else, and we also do not determine our own. We don't determine the value and dignity of worth of anyone else, including ourselves. I need you to hear this. Even if you think that your life is pointless or worthless, God does not. He doesn't. You're made in his image. Your value and your worth has nothing to do with what you produce or what you bring to the table. It has everything to do with the God who has made you to reflect him. You see, at the root of murderous action is both a rejection of God's sovereign authority as creator and a devaluing of his image in the lives of other people. See, but murder isn't the only way we reject God's sovereign authority or devalue his image in others. In fact, it's not even the main way that we do it. See, and that leads us to how this command confronts us. You see, most people don't think of themselves as murderers. Sometimes murderers themselves don't even think of themselves that way. Back in 1931, one of America's most wanted was a guy by the name of Two-Gun Crawley. And he was charged with a string, I'm not joking, literally his name, he recalled to himself as Two-Gun Crawley, right? Uh, he was charged with a string of brutal and heartless homicides. He even killed a cop in cold blood at a traffic stop. And when they finally caught him and arrested him, they found a note on his body, read this way, under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do no one any harm. You see, the truth is, is that we are all guilty of that same kind of deception. We are all guilty of that same kind of deception. You see, we like to think the Sixth Commandment is one of the few we actually keep. It's one of the few that, that we can check off with ease, right? But the reality is that we are not distant from this command, and to think we are is, is false and dangerous because there is no real distance here. You see, if we want to understand the true depth of this command, what Exodus 20 verse 13 teaches us, then we're also going to need to read Jesus' words in Matthew 5. And what we see there is that Jesus is taking us even deeper into the heart of murder than the act of murder itself. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 reads this way. Jesus, he, what he's doing here is he's putting anger and scorn on the same level as murder. It reads this way. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to your brother or sister, Raka, that literally means you nobody, you nobody, you have no worth. It's, to, it's, it's answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, Jesus is saying is that murder is not the real problem. It's the symptom on the surface. 
and said the real problem is our hearts which are sick with the disease of sin. Our anger and our scorn for others is an outflow of our sin-sick hearts. You see, the way we look down on others, the way we speak down to others, the, the anger and the hate that we have towards others. You see, there is a striking similarity between physical and verbal violence. The reality is they both come from the same source, a hate-filled heart, and they both kill You see, the problem is not just our murderous hands. It is our murderous hearts. Do you have a list of people that you wish some days would just kind of disappear from your life? Who is it that you would love to see fall flat on their face just to to be humiliated? Is there someone that you wish would inexplicably just gain a large quantity of weight? Is there, do you have fits of rage against others that are unseen by most people? Are there others you look scornfully down on? Is there a certain race or religion or maybe it might be immigrants or the LGBT community or political opponents or some other group of people that, that you look down on and you see them as having less value or worth or dignity? Jesus says all those things come from a murderous heart. There may not be blood on your hands, but your your heart is soaked with it. You see, we are all murderers. We have murdered through our anger and hate and scorn. And the sixth commandment, it calls us to examine ourselves down to the root of what is happening in our hearts. Heidelberg Catechism writes it this way. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder itself. Things like envy, hatred, anger, and the desire for revenge, he regards these all as murder. See, like two-gun Crawley, often we have deceived ourselves into believing that we are just good people who have evil thoughts every once in a while. You see, when the reality is, is that we are evil people who are unable to control our sin-sick hearts and our anger and our rage and our scorn for others pours out of them often then. You see, the reality is that this command is not written for someone else. It's not written to another people somewhere else. It is written to each and every one of us. You see, like the rest of God's law, the sixth commandment, it leaves us utterly condemned. All of us, we fail somewhere. We need a Savior, every one of us. I see in the transforming good news of the gospel is that the Savior that we have needed has already come. The one who we have needed has come that he might renew our murderous hearts and hands, that he might forgive our murderous hands and our hearts. See, oftentimes what we we either do or we long to pour out the cup of our wrath towards other people. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, what we see is that Jesus is holding the cup of a, a different cup of wrath as well. But it's not the cup of our wrath. It instead is the cup of God's wrath for sinners like us. It's the cup of his righteous, perfect anger directed at those of us all of us who, who are, whose hearts are sick with, the, with sin, whose hearts are murderous in, inside. You see, what Jesus says is that if this is the only way, Father, I will take it. You see, if we deserve that cup, but Jesus took it upon himself. See, the only one who never violated any of the commands or committed murder in the least degree in his heart was murdered by angry murderers like you and I. You see, we have all poured out the cup of wrath on others, but it's only Jesus who has drunken the cup of God's wrath for us. See, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for our murderous hands and our murderous hearts so that we might love and be loved by him. 
Do you see that he did that for you? This morning, do you see that he did that for you? You see, when you see how Jesus valued your life as more significant than his own, when you see the, the, the priceless value which he placed on you, you see that changes you. It transforms you. You see, it enables you to be free to love and value both him and your neighbor as he has loved and valued you. Janie Ortland writes this. She says, Jesus has gone before us, obeying this command perfectly. He was murdered, though he only gave life. He is the ultimate life giver, and we are called to enjoy his forgiveness for our own murderous actions, thoughts, words, and negligence. As he transfers his love and grace onto us, we in turn can give his life to others. You see, what a miracle of grace that angry, hateful slanderers like us are becoming life givers. You see, God is making us into a people whose very character fulfills the sixth command, into a people who not only would not hurt one another, but who positively enrich and energize each other. You see, this is the transforming power of the gospel. So I need you to hear this this morning. Some of you are here this morning and you are sitting under the weight of this command. You are sitting under the weight of this, whether by your hands, the actions of your hands, or the desires of your hearts. And I want to remind you that the gospel is the most transforming power in all of the universe. David Platt writes it this way, that Jesus forgives entirely. He heals deeply. And he restores completely. See, the transforming power of the gospel is not simply that it is, a, it is a cover over our sin, but that the gospel washes us and makes us clean. You see, the Bible is full of murderers who God forgives and redeems and renews and restores and uses to bring life to others. Moses, before he ever did anything good for God's kingdom, killed an Egyptian taskmaster, and yet God uses that man to save an entire nation of people. David murdered a friend to cover up his own sin, and God used him to build a kingdom for God's own glory. Still, Saul was literally hunting down and murdering Christians for their belief in Christ, and God used him and saved him to reach the Gentile world and to write a huge chunk of the Bible. You see, the gospel is the most transformingly powerful force in the world. You are not outside of its redeeming, renewing, transforming power. You are not too far outside of it. You see, the great king of all has come to be the life that you need. And to give his life for yours so that you might find life in him. That you might be totally forgiven. That you might be absolutely cleansed. That you might be restored fully. You see, that's the transforming power of the gospel. Of the person and the work of Jesus. You see, and it's that transforming power that we celebrate and remember each week when we take communion. You see, we are remembering Jesus whose body and blood were broken and shed for us as he drank the cup of God's wrath for our murderous hands and our murderous hearts so that we might receive the cup of living water that he extends to us. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it is a chance for us to remember all that Jesus has done for us, all that he has forgiven us of, all that he was willing to lay aside to come and redeem and to 
rescue and renew and restore. Not when we loved him, not when we were longing for him, not when our lives were cleaned up, but when we were living in the sickness of our murderous hearts. And when the good news of the gospel, when you remember that often, it changes the actions of your hands because it transforms the innerness of your heart. You see, it causes you to be full of love and gratitude for him that overflows in a life full of obedience to him. A life that is free of guilt and shame. A life that is full of joy and obedience unto him. See, the bread and the juice are in the back. And during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Dip your bread in the juice. That's how you do it here at River City. And as we sing and as we worship and remember the gospel together, the song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if by faith you are relying on his total forgiveness for all of your sin, whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. For some of you this morning, the chance to remember and to take communion is a gracious opportunity that God is giving you to remember the forgiveness that he has extended to you. The deep, complete, total, full forgiveness that he has offered you. For some of you, you need to take communion this morning to remember that. Not to get it, not to earn it, but to remember the life that you have in Jesus in spite of all that you have done and all that you have desired, you have life in him and forgiveness in him. Let that free you. Let it, live, let it cause you to live a life full of joyful obedience unto him. But if this morning that's not where your heart is at, if you are not yet hoping and trusting in Jesus to be the one that totally and completely forgives you, that, that makes you right with him, that for his obedience that gives you a perfect standing under this command, and I would encourage you, I want you to know you are welcome here. This place is for you. This people is for you. But I would encourage you, come to Jesus before you come to the communion table. What you need is him. So as this morning, as we take communion, as we sing, talk to God. Confess the sin of your hands and your hearts to him. Ask him to forgive you, and he will. Ask him to remind you of the forgiveness that he has already given you. And he will. See, Jesus is in the business of forgiving murderers like me and like you. You see, let the priceless value that he has paid for your life transform the value you place on the lives of others. Let his life-giving love given for you let it empower you to give his life-giving love to others, to be a people that not just doesn't harm another, but to be a people that gives life as Jesus has given to us. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning. God, and we are humbled as always under the commands of your word. God, and we recognize that our hearts God, our hearts make us guilty under this commands, even if our hands do not. For King Jesus, our hearts have hated and been full of scorn and anger. God, and we recognize that that is a heart that is opposed to you. That's not who you are and what you call your people to be. That's not the image that you have called us to bear. And so, Jesus, we stand guilty under this command. But also, because of the cross and faith in you, we stand clean and forgiven. 
God, for those who are here this morning who feel the, the precise weight of this command, whether by the actions of their hands or the desires of their heart, King Jesus, I pray that you would graciously, sovereignly, lovingly, King Jesus, would you by your spirit speak words of life into their hearts, reminding them of the life that you, that you give, of the forgiveness that, that your life and death bought. Might that free people to live in a joyful obedience unto you. God, enable us to be honest about where our hearts are at. God, enable us to see the reality of our sin-sick hearts so that we might see the magnitude and the glory of all that you have done for us. That the gospel might be the good news it is meant to be for us. God, cause us to be a people in response to all that you are and all that you have done who live in a joyful obedience unto you, giving life as you have given life to us. We pray, amen.